Hey everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced the signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Hello, hello, Forefront family, and welcome to another episode of the Forefront podcast. I am here with my co-host, Alex. Alex, how are you, my friend? Uh, I am simultaneously exhausted and reinvigorated after (laughs) East Denver. That's probably the best way to describe it. Nice, nice, nice. Love it. I love that description. And we're actually, my friends, because this is probably going to be the highlight, um, knowing that our very first episode was Alex giving his his rundown of what had happened at MCON. We're now switching things around. We're not doing the East Denver update from Alex right now, but we're going to close the show with that. So with that, Alex, let's jump right into social tokens. A lot of things going on. As you know, our first segment is tooling and product. And wow, it has been an amazing couple of weeks, just generally for portable composable data. A handful of days ago, as you may know, Ceramic Protocol raised 30 million Series A to accelerate development of the network. As you may know, Ceramic makes it possible for Web3 devs to build apps on top of an ecosystem of composable data. So data becomes reusable across all applications. And this is really the mind-blowing door that is being opened as we speak. Some days prior to that, Alex, the Lens protocol was launched. And that's what I'd love to go into right now with you. Lens is a decentralized social media protocol powered by NFTs. This was actually brought to you by the dev team behind Ave Protocol. So the Twitter announcement was made February 7th, and I'm going to pull from that and also from their really cool mirror announcement publication. So what's the tagline here for Lens Protocol? Lens Protocol is a permissionless, composable, decentralized social graph that will power the next generation of Web3 social platforms. So what's the value prop? Developers, if you're ready to focus on creating a great user experience versus scaling your users, Lens Protocol is here for you. They're ready for you to build on. It's fully open source. You can build social apps, analytics platforms, verification systems, DAO tooling, it's all possible. So Alex, Lens Protocol has all the social media functions that you would expect. Um, You can get a profile, you can comment, you can share, and we'll go into that later because this is by far one of the coolest elements of the protocol. But it is the first social media protocol to be powered by NFTs. So this enables you to own and control all of your content. This is from Lens's mirror announcement, quote, Since users own their data, they can bring it to any application built on top of Lens Protocol. As the true owners of their content, creators no longer need to worry about losing their content, audience, and livelihood based on the whims of an individual platform's algorithms and policies. Additionally, each application using the Lens Protocol benefits the entire ecosystem, turning the zero-sum game into a collaborative one. Developers can design meaningful social experiences without needing to turn to feedback mechanisms to lock in a user's attention, end quote. So profile NFTs are the core primitive of the Lens Protocol. These are dynamic, they're composable, 
they're non-custodial. There's many use cases here, Alex, including the ability for a single profile NFT to be owned and managed by a DAO via a multi-sig wallet. So we have the profile NFT, and now we have the second piece. When you follow someone, you're granted a follow NFT. So there's always been signal behind these simple actions, right? When you're, when you're checking out a new profile, say on Twitter, you're wondering, should I follow them? You're checking out who's already following them because that, that matters. But now with the Lens Protocol, there's legible dynamic value and reputation that can be monetized. So both the profile NFT and the follow NFT have unique token IDs that come with rarity and utility. So for instance, we learn in the Twitter announcement that these unique traits can be used to gate governance, for instance, limit voting to your most loyal fans. These NFTs can also be traded on the open market. So social media we know is powered by UGC. So how is content created and shared on the Lens Protocol? Through something that they call publications. So publications can be anything, any sort of IFPS file. You can create and share pictures, music, video, text. Each publication, of course, becomes a unique digital asset for which you, the creator, can set the price, edition size, a time limit during which it'll be on sale. And being the original creator of the content is one thing, but feeling passionate about something enough to collect it is also a form of creation. So if Mm. you like what you see, you can collect the publications, these content types, from folks that you follow. But this is the really cool part, Alex. What happens if someone else uh, already owns the content that you love. What can you That's do in I'm that thinking. instance? <laughs> exactly. You can still share it using what they call the mirror feature. So by amplifying a particular piece of content by sharing it, you will then receive a mirror fee. This is a financial attribution, a financial thank you. And you will receive this fee from anyone who subsequently collects that original content through your share. So this mm. is mind-blown. You get paid. You actually get paid for amplifying content and you will get paid from any single person that subsequently finds your share and ends up collecting that content. So reading through the Lens Protocol's vision, Alex, I was reminded of this great piece authored by uh, Tal Shahar uh, entitled Proof of Passion. And I think Tal Shahar is is a member of the Dark Star uh, Mirror DAO, which I absolutely love. Great little band of writers. But he published this on his Substack in March of 2021. And I think you can see this proof of passion very clearly in the form of like the first believers of a tiny account, right? The first follows mm-hmm. of a new creator. And let's say, let's say this new creator is super confident, like wonderfully audacious in their future prospects that even though they are currently a complete unknown, they're pricing their publications, their NFTs at exceptionally high amounts. And maybe the creator even goes a step further and bakes in some sort of mechanism similar to the Euler Beats NFT project, where every subsequent NFT print will be exponentially more expensive. So the first believers seeing this price signal, seeing this signal of confidence, they swoop in, they buy and collect these NFTs from a relative unknown. And the Lens Protocol is betting that all of this, this proof of passion, this is the value prop of the next-gen social media platform. It can be not only profitable, but can become a really deep, context-rich ecosystem for signaling taste, for price discovery, setting supply, demand, discovering new stars. So 
I want to just read a couple excerpts from Tal Shahar's uh, article because I think it really does highlight the the potential power in um, in the Lens Protocol. He writes, NFTs and tokens in general shift the calculus. They make proof of passion verifiable, public, accessible, and in some cases, profitable. The fact that you supported a creator, the fact that you bought into that particular project, the when and what, and for how much, all are indelibly and universally established. And while there may be lockups and limitations, you acquire ownership immediately. It's way too early to know exactly how, but all of this will have a weird and pronounced impact on our cultural and economic behavior. Proof of passion will raise the rewards for accurate prediction making and early adoption. Cultural fads will trend faster as we all look to jump in early so that we can prove that we were there later, not to mention profit from it. Volatility will be normal as people essentially day trade culture. More positively, establishing a track record through proof of passion may finally enable a scalable business model for independent cool hunters and curators those who consistently invest in overlooked and underappreciated items that then wildly succeed will be sought after. Love that. Marketers, yes, marketers and algorithms will surveil their purchases, swarming in after these tastemakers. Hopeful projects will offer them free or discounted tokens, making their potential upside even higher. And it's easy to imagine clubs of these culture-sensitive curators banding together, pooling capital, intelligence, and their purchases, something like a group-run gallery or record label. The most successful could go further and tokenize the owned assets, almost like a mutual fund. So in reading this, and I read this article like many, many months ago, I see now, and it's, it's again, it's just, I see many months ago, but it's just literally been the time span of a few months uh, and we already are seeing the building up of an actual ecosystem in which Tal's vision can now be realized in this proof of passion economy. So um, I, I'm just so stoked about this. But back to the Twitter announcement, Alex, as if all this weren't enough, if you've got an amazing idea for what you want to build on the Lens protocol, but you need funding, Lens is offering right now a 250K grants program to accelerate the growth of the ecosystem. Final thing I think I really want to share with the fam, there was an open letter that the Lens team uh, published on their site, lens.dev backslash letter. I recommend you go read it. You can, uh, you can sign the open letter. It's quite powerful. It reads, our digital identities have become inseparable from how we define ourselves. Social media has allowed us to find communities and discover true self-expression. It holds the promise of connection, freedom, livelihood, and voice. We spend time building a unique selfhood across platforms, but we know they are antiquated, centralized systems. Web3 brings forth a renewed hope for what social media can be. It offers the ability for us to control how our content is used. We have the power to own and monetize our content and community with no middlemen or centralized data harvesting. We, the content creators of the world, deserve to hold the power and control over what we publish. And what is identity, if not ours to own? End quote. I think this is beautiful. I think the trajectory of the evolution of the space is undeniable. It boggles the mind to think, as mentioned earlier, it's just something that we assume that we accept. Uh, up until this day, we've just accepted it, that creators can invest so much time in building up content, so much time in building up their audience, a means of livelihood essentially creating the value that drives um, the market cap of a company like Meta or Facebook and lose it all 
like literally lose it all based on the whims of that platform's algorithms and policies. So given the expanding reach of Web3, Alex, given our pa- your, your and my passion of getting the word out on Web3 to more and more minds and hearts, the prospect of this happening will become more and more unacceptable to creators. And so I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about how things are moving so fast and sentiments are amplified exponentially. And with this zeitgeist settling in, Alex, is it any surprise that Meta, you know, Meta's launch fell on deaf ears, that Facebook lost more than I think it was 200 billion in market value in one afternoon in early <laughs> February? I mean, this is like, this is, this is truly mind blowing, but I, I, it's almost as if I see this train wreck. <laughs> coming down in slow motion. It's happening. You know, I just didn't think that it would happen that fast. I literally didn't. I was like, oh, that metaverse launch didn't go so well, but literally did not see um, this this 200 billion plus loss of value in just one afternoon. So Alex, what do you think about all of that? So many threads there. Yeah. A uh, lot of thoughts here. I mean, two things here. I mean, it's amazing what they've done in so short a time. You said it's just a few mm-hmm. months old. Uh, one, this is released by Ave and just shout out to Ave. They are pushing out such cool, I don't even know if you want to call them side projects. They're, they're main <laughs> projects in their own, but uh, this, something like Newt, um, it's just really, really cool projects and kudos to them to not just sitting into the DeFi space, but really using mm-hmm. their leverage to uh, advance Web3. So kudos to them. The other thing I'm realizing here is crypto kind of runs in dog years, right? One year in the real world is... One year in crypto is like seven years in the real world type of thing. It just things mm-hmm. move so fast yes. here. So I'm it's almost um, uh, desensitized to it. It's just like, oh, this is only <laughs> a few months old. Like that's an eternity in this space. But it, it is, I don't want that to, to pull away from the amount of work that's obviously been done here in the last few months. Um, the other things going through my mind here are, I love the incentive structure that they put together. I, I just, I love tokenomics. Again, Mm-hmm. I think it's so cool that we're a time in history where you can create these kind of encapsulated microeconomies where you can basically work around with different incentive structures. And what I loved hearing about this is one of the things that were going through my mind in the beginning when you were talking about this is, all right, if they're going to be basically paying people based on likes, there's going to be this whole sub-economy of people just basically posting as much shit as they possibly can, and then a bunch of bots going out and liking every single one of those. But when you can create it in a way where it's like you're basically incentivizing quality here and saying that you can get in early, you can you can buy NFTs for content that people are most likely going to like later on and just not a lot of people know about it. Um, you, you do incentivize the actual quality there. And that's what I wanted to see here. I, th- I think the other, mm. if you're zooming out a little bit more here, is this looks like a very non-skeuomorphic type of solution to social media. Uh, mm. and that's not to say skeuomorphic is bad, but something we've covered before is Orbis. There's another, uh, kind of Twitter clone with some web three native aspects called gm.xyz. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are a little bit more familiar to us because they are based off of a web two primitive, so to speak, mm-hmm. like Twitter, but this is definitely in uh, a league of its own could totally fall flat in its face, but I love seeing this through it, that they're thinking from a first principles standpoint, you can tell here. And they're saying, what do we have at our disposal in Web3? And how can we think outside the box in a way that creates a better experience for people while not necessarily tying it back to something that everyone's familiar with? So Mm -hmm. I think something that might be difficult for this is like adoption. This is definitely going to be 
um, make a lot of sense to more Web3 native people where it's mm-hmm. going to be difficult to bring in people who aren't as familiar, where something mm-hmm. like the skeuomorphic social media options are going to be very easy for people to pick up because it's familiar. So there might yes. be this series of steps in the social media space. And I, I think that example with Meta losing so much market share, uh, or at least um, in, in valuation, there's been many signals that we've seen where people are disenfranchised by the metas of the world, by the Mm -hmm. Twitters of the world, and Mm -hmm. they're looking for something new here. So I would not be surprised if we see a lot more pop-up like this that are Mm -hmm. trying to solve the problem in different ways. And I think that's good. I don't think it's necessarily like, let's do a winner takes all. There's going to be a series of steps where people are going to feel a lot more comfortable and certain people are going to feel a lot more comfortable with something that's a little bit more skeuomorphic, like a Twitter clone. And then others who are more Web3 are going to be more comfortable with something like Lens Protocol. And then there will be like a trickle-down effect over time. That's one option, I think, that that we, we could see here. But I, I love seeing options like this. I'm going to play around with this. This sounds really cool. I, I think this might be a solution, hopefully, to a curation problem and might mitigate the noise and improve the quality. That's the type of incentive structure that I'm looking for here is how can you push high-quality content to the forefront? and reduce the noise and the crap that um, <laughs> is so, not necessarily crap, but there's just so much information overload in Web3 right now that I'm, I'm looking for a solution here that really incentivizes pushing the quality content to the top. So mm-hmm. I'm really interested to see how the tokenomics uh, and the incentive structure works out for something like this. Sweet. You know, as, as you were talking, Alex, it reminded me, because uh, I think we just covered this like maybe two or three shows ago at most, but have you have you heard anything about how looks rare um, the the new NFT platform that just arose as a challenger to OpenSea? Have you mm-hmm. heard of how, how they've been doing? I mean, I think it would be super interesting to look at OpenSea activity and to see if there's actually been a dent uh, in yeah. terms of people flowing to looks rare. But I, I actually haven't. But the question occurred to me, wondering if you've heard anything about it. I've I've heard mixed things from people, mm. and I'm I'm not like huge huge into the. The NFT culture myself, like I'm not buying and trading high volume type of stuff. Mm-hmm. I know people Same. who are, Same. and I've I've heard mixed things because when we when we talked about looks rare, they were actively trying to put things in place that would combat against wash trading. I, that this is I'm glad you brought this up. This is a perfect parallel to what I'm thinking of when I look at Lens Protocol. Is are they incentivizing this kind of wash trading of content, or are they incentivizing super high quality? And looks rare while they were trying for that, there was still a lot of that wash trading and people were farming looks. And even though in that paper that we released or that we talked about on the show here, they were actively trying to combat against that and saying there's going to be a cap on the day, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're putting those things in place. What what I think is important with looks rare, what I've seen is the team is really listening to the uh to their users. Mm-hmm. Um that's aside from any things like if they're selling off large percentages of their token holdings. I mean, some mm-hmm. people are already disenfranchised with something like looks rare. It's been super su- successful in a short amount of time. And especially for a team that put all that work in, yeah. we're human beings. They're they're going to be pressured and incentivized to sell off a big portion and cap in. If like, you're going to make $50, $50 million selling this off, I mean, we're human beings. Like that's really hard to turn down and yeah. we could put ourselves in that in their shoes, but it's very yeah. difficult to know unless you're in that situation yourself. So th- there's all those things going around where I do still think there is room for a new open sea in the market. Mm-hmm. And 
maybe it's not like what we saw where OpenSea is capturing the vast, vast majority of mm-hmm. the, um, you know, the market share there. I was actually talking to some people at ETH Denver who were saying they're, they're pretty bearish on multi-chain NFT marketplaces. So they're actually mm-hmm. releasing an NFT marketplace on Optimism. And they're mm-hmm. only going to specialize on optimism. So now they have a really good direct relationship with optimism. They are actually so involved that they're able to help direct the, the, the roadmap of optimism and saying like, here's a real use case for optimism. We have a lot of people involved in this NFT marketplace. Mm-hmm. And we're going to take that feedback and bring it back to you, the team, so that we can work on developing it for these other use cases. Hmm. And that made a lot of sense to me that if, if, if their team is buckling down and saying, we're just going to make a bet on optimism, whether right mm-hmm. or wrong, you get a lot more specialized, and a lot more time spent with those sure. teams to influence the direction of those markets. So that might, we might see a fraction, uh, you know, fractionalization of the NFT marketplaces where there might be a de facto marketplace for optimism, for Arbitrum, for Polygon, for Solana, for et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that might be a future that we see. So I mean, good parallel here, though, where this can go wrong. So yes. I, I think Lens Protocol could look to a looks rare and say, how can we make sure we're listening to our community and thinking through some of the problems that they might have run into it, not just going for a quick hit success and dump, but building for a long-term future. Yes, yes. Very cool. So Alex, take us into the, the next uh, segment. You, you have something to tell us about Salesforce, please. Yes. So jumping into the more traditional Web2 world. Um, so I came from the Web2 world. Uh, I still I work in the Web3 world, but I actually work with Salesforce, the tool here. So I'm pretty familiar with the company. Um, for people not as familiar with Salesforce, they really got their start as, a, as kind of the the go-to blue chip CRM, customer relationship manager. So mm-hmm. any big company, any big or small company that was selling to customers, that tool is where you would track all of your information. And since then, they've kind of become this conglomerate. They're buying up all these different tools. The, the most recent big acquisition was Slack. Um, I, f- I can't even remember the valuation there, but it was multiple, multiple billions. And th- wow. th- they're kind of building out this ecosystem here. So similar to a lot of these other big companies that we're seeing getting into the NFT space, Salesforce has also announced that they're getting into the NFT space. Um, if for people who were more intimately involved here, this wasn't as much as a, of a surprise. So Mark Benioff, who's the CEO or co-CEO of Salesforce, um, he and his wife own Time Magazine. And there was a very recent release of Time Magazine NFTs called Time Pieces. So digital collectibles give owners access to magazine content and events. So you could already tell if you were involved in that, that Mark Benioff is partial to NFTs. And similar to what we were hearing about a lot of these other Web2 releases, it's basically like, we're thinking about NFTs. Mm -hmm. And that's about it so far. (laughs) So yet to see how this kind of manifests. And I'm sorry to sound pessimistic, but I'm I'm getting more into... I don't want to bring my own opinion into it too much, but I, mm-hmm. I want to bring to light the the importance here of looking at this. Even if you do not give a shit about Salesforce or Reddit or Square Enix or any of these other companies that have announced NFTs and say that'll never work, it is important um, because it they have way more of an audience. They have a really big audience mm-hmm. and the audience doesn't know any better and they say, this mm-hmm. is what NFTs are. I mean, no wonder they think it's a scam. 
and this is this is not to knock Salesforce because we're yet to see where this comes out, but it is super important to follow these Web2 companies and whether they're successful or not, it's going to change the narrative out there. So you you almost want them to succeed just for the sheer point that it's going to give a better, it's going to be better marketing for NFTs in general. And then when people have, you know, see what can be done in Web2, now we can introduce this more Web3 native aspect and say, here's here's what's possible. Here's the forefront. Here's the future of NFTs. It's not just digital art. Here's all these different utility aspects to it. So who knows? They might they might take a totally different approach to this. They might bring a ton of, of of utility. I haven't looked too much into the time pieces. It seems more of like like he said, owning different aspects of the magazine. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much additional utility is there. But mm-hmm. one specific thing he mentioned is that they're referencing NFT related work that Pepsi has done, as an example. Mm-hmm. So they're they're looking to other large uh, Web two companies, and I just. Again, hope this isn't something where it's a, you know, a Microsoft or Apple move where sales of this 30% get kicked back to the company. And then you have this just kind of web, web two thing wrapped in a web three wrapper. So we'll, we'll see again, this is just announced releasing an NFT cloud, um, more to come on this, but I do recommend people follow this and, and get a little bit more involved. Even if you do not care about how this NFT turns out, it's going to affect the narrative for the next wave of people coming in here. And we already know that there are a lot of very negative feelings out there about NFTs, whether rightfully yeah. so or wrongly. Yes. And actually interesting development on that, Alex, when I was digging into this a little bit, uh, saw Business Insider reported yesterday uh, that more than 400 Salesforce employees have signed an open letter of protest against the, yeah. the company's plans. Not uh, to launch NFT, yes. So they're they're citing environmental, economic concerns, uh, underscoring uh, quote how the NFT market could undercut the company's five core values of trust, customer success, innovation, equality, and sustainability. Uh, the employees wrote the amount of scams and fraud in the NFT space is overwhelming. Uh, the letter also highlighted environmental concerns and citing research showing the uneven distribution of the financial benefits of NFTs. So. They think mm-hmm. the article closed with saying Salesforce states that it plans to hold a quote unquote listening session with employees this week. So. <laughs> shouting, probably. <laughs> Mostly shouting. Yes. Um, yes. I, I mean, no surprises there, right? We're hearing the same exact arguments. And again, whether there's merit to them or not, there's this actually this two hour long video on YouTube talking about how like the, all the numerous pitfalls of NFTs and things you might not be thinking about and all the comments on there are like, wow, this opened my eyes to how mm-hmm. harmful NFTs are. And I, mm-hmm. I've been meaning to watch it because it's important. And I bet you there's a lot of very reasonable things in there. And as mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. ecosystem, you have to address those things. And then yes. the other piece is if there are uh, mis- misgivings, misunderstandings, it's kind of our job to sit there and not just say, oh, they'll get it or screw mm-hmm. them. They don't get it. Mm-hmm. it th- th- you need a voice here to be understanding, even people shouting in your face, telling you that you're destroying the planet, that you're a piece of shit for doing this and yeah. be welcoming and say, let's, let's, I want to help you think about this a little bit differently and saying yeah. it in a non-pretentious way, extremely difficult. I mean, I can't believe I'm even saying that myself. It's so infuriating to listen to these things and be like, it's clear you've done a second of research or read a headline, and then you've just become dogmatically opposed to this thing that you clearly mm-hmm. don't understand. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it this this thing will not that we all believe can change the world. Well, if only if 
5% of the world uses it and 95 thinks it's a scam and you're a criminal, well, it's not going to change the world. So part of the process here is not just building, but communicating the value and utility here. And, and unfortunately, big companies, whether they do it right or wrong, have a huge audience. And we're kind of at the whim of them having the first say in the, in the market about how these things can or can't be used. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, mm-hmm. this is why I think it's important to stay involved here. And, mm-hmm. and, and watch it because it does have a wide-reaching audience and it can change the narrative and it can stifle the growth that we see in the future if people are digging their heels in and saying, oh, this is bad. And then it's very difficult, we all know as humans, to change mm-hmm. our mind or, tell, or admit that we're wrong. So it's kind of like whoever gets there first wins. So that, it's, it's called action, I think, to people natively in Web3 is saying, how can you get more involved in marketing this technology and the utility there in an understanding and welcoming way, rather than sitting there and, and I'm not saying people are doing this, but even at the very least, ignoring it and saying like, I'm just going to put my head down and build. Well, that's one side of the, the, the pie. You need to concentrate on the other side and say, how can we make sure the message out there is saying that this isn't just absolutely destroying the planet. It's a total scam in every way, shape or form, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And just an interesting thought experiment that came to me about while you're speaking, Alex, like how would this all go down in a DAO? Like I couldn't help it listen, when I, when I read that line that Salesforce states it plans to hold a quote unquote listening session, I'm thinking to myself, is that like corporate speak for, you know, we'll kind of assuage these 400 employees with like maybe one hour meeting where we have, you know, someone in a higher up position listening and nodding and writing notes down, but essentially <laughs> we've, we've made our decision. Um, and, you know, just a separate, again, separate from uh, any sort of judgment being passed on what these 400 employees, uh, what their sort of uh, their position that they're standing upon to say that they are protesting this for environmental or economic concerns. Like, I think it, I think it actually shows quite powerfully, like why core values. It, it reminds me today of what we did, Alex, in, in Forefront. Mm-hmm. You were there mm-hmm. for the first half. We were launching season two. We spent quite a bit of time talking about our core values, right? So the, the, our North mm-hmm. Star and our core values, these are things that are uh, perhaps uh, treated uh, rather uh, superficially in, in many sort of contexts. And I think employees and from the traditional world of work tend to regard them with uh, suspicion in terms of like, sure, you're saying all these things that you value, but how is your walk? How does your walk actually compare to your talk? So I think it is yeah. quite, it, it's quite powerful that you have just a, f- a few days after Salesforce announces this, um, that 400 employees have signed on and publicized as widely as they could, that they are protesting this. I know that in the letter, people were saying that they would outright quit. Um, they were saying that they were shocked because the company just had a major Super Bowl ad that expressed a commitment to environmental sustainability. Um, so it, it does actually show the power of a the core values, the sort of guiding intuition of a community and how important that is in terms of motivating and developing this uh, relationship of trust uh, with your contributors. Um, and so I, I do I do have empathy for that. Uh, I do have empathy for the way that they're standing up and saying, wait a minute, to us, this is completely undercutting what, what mm-hmm. you say that mm-hmm. we are all about. And so it is quite an interesting thought experiment about how this would go down in a DAO. But anyway, with that said, I I want to hop into our next segment. This is DAOs. And of course, there's no shortage of of, uh, of material. And because we want to save quite a bit of space for Alex and his rundown on on ETH Denver, we're going to skip tooling and product. We're going to go right into new projects. And this update I bring to you is about 
wildfire DAO. So this was super interesting because I did not know very much about meta governance just generally. And so the tagline here is wildfire is a meta governance initiative to connect and align community members from across the ecosystem, creating new squads to tackle token design, governance, and coordination problems in an open and collaborative manner. So I do want to insert a little bit of meta governance background because I had to go on this journey myself, Alex, and I'm going to do a hat tip to a podcast called I Pledge Allegiance. And this is a podcast featuring Brian Flynn from Rabbit Hole and Mel Eath, a prolific contributor uh, with the index community. So they were saying that the sort of conceit of this podcast as it opened was that meta governance as a whole, as a concept, has not really reached a critical threshold of penetration in the space. You know, people, we hear the term, but the, the level of understanding is quite superficial. It has this aura of like Dow wonkiness. How can we bring this down to earth? And the podcast opened with Mel and Brian giving their succinct definition, which I want to share with the family now. Mel Eats said, meta governance is essentially your neighbor's governance. Uh, it's using the governance influence you have, uh, whether you have tokens for another protocol in your treasury or in a product like an indexing token. Uh, it's using that ability to influence another protocol's operations, things like elections, using the votes enabled by your tokens. Brian Flynn of Rabbit Hole says, uh, meta governance to him is the participation of a specific DAO in the governance of other DAOs. So you have a DAO that has assets in its treasury and it's using those assets in mm. another protocol's governance. So super interesting background. And again, this is all background to wildfire, but I thought Alex would definitely appreciate it. There was Index recently public, published uh, the draft IIP uh, titled Meta Governance 2.0 Executive Productivity. It's absolutely fascinating. Alex, and it shows up the problems relating to governance generally, which you and I have jammed on quite a bit. Uh, but this draft IIP proposes lending the voting power in index product governance tokens. So the IIP opens with this. We propose a new model of voting with governance tokens and index products that will unlock the full value of meta governance and will accrue value to product holders. The fees generated from lending voting power will make governance tokens and index products effortlessly productive for product holders. And this yield generation mechanism we call executive productivity. This change will make index, index coup products more valuable than the sum of the underlying components. So the abstract says this IIP directs meta governance utility via tokens held in index, index products to a vote lending market. The index token where meta governance is currently delegated will continue to govern at the protocol level. However, index holders will no longer have meta governance voting power. Product holders will receive vote lending proceeds without needing to take action such as staking. The yields will be injected directly into the existing vaults and composability will remain unchanged. So, what problem does this solve for? And again, when I say this, neither Alex and I are going to be surprised, but the problem that this solves for, says the IIP, is that, quote, meta governance has been a key value proposition for index token holders, but it has yet to be a value driver. Governance is the primary utility for many component tokens of index products, but index holders rarely use meta governance. So again, Alex and I are not surprised. We've talked about governance apathy. We've talked about low voter participation in our own DAOs and communities, much less at a second, yep. third degree of distance. 
But anyway, the statistics here are quite still, they're quite stark, and they share these statistics in the IAP. Uh, for example, they say the following proposals had very high rates of vote apathy. For Ave 54, there were only 17 votes. Meta-governance votes for Badger IP82, there were only nine meta-governance votes. And for Yearn 65, there were only 22 meta-governance votes. So it's clear that the current model is broken. And under the current model, what does it look like? So first step, a vote borrower or an activist buys index. The activist then votes on a meta-governance proposal using that index. But the problem here with the current model is that it just doesn't work. It's prohibitively expensive for vote borrowers to reach a quorum and win on meta-governance proposals. And even if they do win, it will only sway the primary underlying proposal a small amount. After the second step, the index meta-governance committee executes a vote as the result of what happened in step two. And then the last step, the activist ends up selling in the index. So there's no benefit here to index holders or the index ecosystem. So what I, the IIP is proposing as a new model, uh, Alex, is that the activists now say they want to create a proposal on Uniswap. They're going to borrow the required uni voting power from the index vote lending market for a fee. The proceeds mm. from those fees are then returned to index coup product holders by increasing the quantity of the underlying assets in the respective index product. So a new flywheel is created. In the words of the IIP, vote lending is non-linear. There are economies of scale in lending voting power. For example, the value of being able to lend 2% of a protocol's governance token is greater than 2x the value of being able to lend 1%. As a product attracts assets under management, vote lending yield will increase, attracting more assets under management, further increasing voting power ad infinitum. Interesting FAQ at the bottom of this uh, post. Question, is vote buying fair? Answer, vote buying already happens, but most token holders are left out of the process. An open vote lending mm. market, such as we propose, will allow token holders to receive payment for votes that they are indifferent to. Another comment that I just <laughs> want to quickly highlight, because it's just, it, I think this whole thing is just fascinating, Alex, is highlighting the nuances and the challenges of meta-governance. Uh, but a comment at the very bottom said, reasons I don't think this proposal is the right path forward. Number one, index coop trades the market shifting power of meta governance for non-strategic revenue generation. Good point. And number two, index coop ab abdicates the incredible responsibility of meta governance to the market. And number three, it puts index coop at risk of supporting and enabling nefarious activity. So, wow. So that was just a little bit of background context. I found it absolutely fascinating. Wanted to share it with Alex. Wanted to share it with you, the fam. Okay, so now we're going to hop into the actual announcement of Wildfire DAO. So this was announced at East Denver. Fire Eyes was started uh, by a small group of folks as a Web3 governance DAO about two years ago. They have contributed to really impactful token launches in the Ethereum ecosystem, including ENS, Gitcoin, Super Rare but they've hit the ceiling of being able to scare, scale from this small group of four people. They want to be active participants in meta-governance and they need help. So they have decided to stand up this first multi-project governance collective in the entire ecosystem. And FireEyes wants to set this as a precedent for the broader community. They say governance and participation in these systems cannot stay siloed to individual projects any longer. 
So not only does FireEyes want to encourage and develop a meta-governance collective, they also want to inspire and coordinate other new governance squads. We've seen the beginning of this from a number of groups, but we believe that in order for Ethereum and our community to successfully reshape the world's economic and governance structures, we will need many more of these squads to emerge and coordinate at scale, end quote. So Alex, they've launched an open application with onboarding to four meta-governance categories, including DeFi, public goods, creator economy, and infrastructure and tooling. And the Wildfire DAO is taking a very expansive vision of meta-governance, Alex. It's not just about voting with tokens. Uh, The Wildfire DAO is wanting to take uh, responsibilities associated with connecting with the core teams and contributors of these protocols, of these DAOs. They want to be actively writing proposals to participate in governance through the creation and discussion and execution of projects. Um, They want to, of course, be updating the wider Wildfire network. They want to be participating in community calls and project communications. And of course, they want to be participating in internal governance. Um, So that is the rundown, uh, which I think is absolutely fascinating, especially for me. I haven't really begun digging into this prior to uh, doing this research, Alex, but what do you think? Have, have you been digging into meta governance at all? What do you think about this? Wow. No, this is, this is a newer concept to me, but Mm -hmm. I, this is, this idea is super, super interesting to me because just to rehash what we talked about on previous episodes, I mean, we've hashed out how the the pure democratic type of voting style where it's just mob Mm -hmm. vote doesn't work in the long term. And I think a lot of people in the DAO space have figured that out Mm -hmm. where if you have everyone vote on everything, well, you're going to get very low voter participation or you're going to get voters who are just kind of willy-nilly voting because they don't really care about the outcome or they don't understand the value of the outcome. Mm -hmm. And there's problems to that. But there's also problems to going too far in the opposite direction where it's too centralized and it's like an oligarchy where people are ruling over it. And I'm not saying this is what this is. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to see is like, where is the sweet spot? And what I'm, what I'm seeing the potential here, and I love how Index Co-op is pointing out like, here's the very real risks of this. Let's mm-hmm. think about holistically and not just like sunshine and rainbows. Let's go for it. Because it is important to say, this is a spectrum and going either too far either way has problems. So what I like about this whole meta-governance piece is it kind of solves for that problem of the lack of knowledge and lack of specialization to really understand what's going on in every single vote, Mm -hmm. right? Not every single person involved in these communities has the time to do these, um, what was it, these six things that they're calling out here, connecting with core teams and contributors regularly, writing proposals to participate, updates to the wider wildfire network, et cetera, et cetera. Like they're, they're getting more deeply involved here and that is going to, if you trust the people there to hold your best interests at heart, that they're going to have a much more educated opinion on which direction right. the, the proposal could go on. Right. And might even be able to do like a TLDR, explain like I'm five type of, hey, community, here's what the governance proco- proposal is really proposing mm-hmm. here. Here are the two options. Here are the pros and cons of each. Um and, and, and giving that and, and being very, very public about it. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is going to be key here is you keep this very open, very transparent so that the community can say uh, the rage quit aspect. Like if you're not representing my interests, then I can pull out. And that is the key difference here in the DAO space versus something like a traditional political system where the, the equivalent of that is, well, I leave the country. Well, there's, uh, it's yes. very, very costly. The opportunity cost is very high to leave the country physically, where the opportunity cost to leave a DAO with the right tooling 
very, very low. And that's what you want. You want real punishments for making decisions on proposals that don't put the best interests at heart of the community. And they should be able to vote with their tokens, with their money. So I, this is very, very interesting. I had not, I'd not thought of this concept at all. And I think pulling together these resources and keeping it very open and transparent while harnessing the power of specialization and getting deeply involved in these projects so you can make educated decisions might be the best of both worlds here. Mm. So uh, Matt James, Matt, Matt Coop, like I like the guys, at least I, I haven't met Lucas or Callum. So, um, I mean, you got a power squad here, people going for this. Fire Eyes is really well-respected. So we'll see where it goes. Definitely mm-hmm. something I'm going to be looking at because this could be one of those moments where it's a constitution down moment where a lot of people are watching and a lot of people are copying afterwards. Mm -hmm, So uh, mm -hmm. I'll be keeping an eye on this one. So one last DAO that we're going to cover before jumping into the ETH Denver recap is Treasure DAO. So I'm super pumped about to cover this one because I come from the gaming world and this is a DAO focused on kind of creating gaming economies of scale and distribution. So uh, I'll get into this a little bit. The two ways that they, 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 invite their audience to think about TreasureDAO is first, a decentralized gaming publishing platform whereby the Treasure ecosystem provides the tools and resources for developers to build, launch, and monetize games in Web3. And second here is a base economic control layer for other games to build on so they may outsource the drudgery of economic management to TreasuryDAO. So when I think about these missions in the gaming world, it it sounds similar to in the traditional web3 world like developer platforms so i come from figment one of the ones that we one of the, our platform is called data hub there are others out there that do something similar where the idea here is that as a dapp developer you don't necessarily want to be focusing on building all of your own infrastructure out uh, setting up your mm-hmm. own indexers setting up your own storage like those are all things that are necessary in order to run an effective dapp but they're, they're kind of like these necessary evils. Whereas if you have a platform that allows you to do all of those mm-hmm. things, you kind of outsource that aspect of DAP development and you get to focus on the actual DAP that you're building, the unique aspects to it. So I really like that idea of bringing that to the gaming world where now you kind of take out some of the more complicated aspects of building a, uh, you know, a pay to earn or play to earn game. And, um, taking that out and saying the DAO is going to focus on that. You kind of have this economy, you have this token, they're magic tokens, what they're calling it. And you can build the game on top of this. And not only do you get the benefits of building on top of this platform where we have our own own token, our own economy, that you don't have to worry about the tokenomics piece, Mm -hmm. but you actually create this ecosystem of games where the more games that come into the ecosystem, the more valuable your game is Mm -hmm. because you're adding things like liquidity, like you already have your economy built out. You don't have to worry about it. I mean, it's so funny to think of this because in, in traditional games, there's, there's a game called Eve. They've actually hired economists for Eve, <laughs> the Eve game, to reside over the economy and make sure that it's healthy because it's a very player-driven economy. Mm. So it's very difficult. Like to, again, a game is actually a really good example of these micro-economies mm-hmm, and building mm-hmm. those out and those incentive structures. Um, I'd say that's one of the other examples from history that we can point to besides actually building out DAOs and token economies there. So that's a little bit about them. They just migrated to Arbitrum in October. And I don't know, Caroline, if you've ever heard of a DAO running on Arbitrum yet. That was kind of new to me. Mm -hmm. No. That's it's So uh, I'm super interested to see how that works out because uh, Mm. one, you're making a bet on a a 
kind of layer two here, scaling mm-hmm, solution. Mm-hmm. So especially for games where there's going to be tons of transactions, mm-hmm. just building on <laughs> Ethereum layer one is just not an yes, option. Yes. Um, and then the other options are basically layer twos or completely different blockchains. So mm. I, if, if anyone's looking for an opportunity to get involved in Arbitrum, uh, this might be a good way to do it. Start playing some of these games with uh, Treasure DAO. They have six points here that I want to read through. Uh, it gives a lot of clarity in what they're trying to do here. So um, from a first principle standpoint, what role does Treasure DAO fit in this space? So the concept of digital convergence, where media assets and in-game tooling are shared across development teams, working on the same sort of fictional universe has been a key business target, but never took off in practice because of differences in tech stack used by different game studios designing games under the same universe. And this is the important part here, and a lack of unifying incentive to do so. Mm-hmm. This is a theme we are seeing in all of Web3, where finally you have blockchain technology that's allowing a different incentive structure to get things that didn't work in the traditional world off the ground. Public goods, perfect example. Mm. So now we have a new way to incentivize people. And you can bring these ideas that are not new to fruition because you have the incentive structure. Follow the incentives. That's it's my favorite thing about this technology is that it brings a new incentive structure here and unlocks the possibility to do things that were not possible uh, in the existing world. Uh, the, I, I think the other key piece that I want to cover here, just for the sake of time, is interoperability. So this theme of interoperability I mentioned in our first episode of this year, I think this is going to be a key theme of 2022. Dare I try and predict the future in crypto, which is very risky, <laughs> but I do think that's going to be one of the key themes here for this year. We talked about Cosmos IBC right? You have the benefits of having interoperable blockchains that are natively interoperable and not these clunky chain, mm-hmm. these clunky bridges. Yeah. I mean, Vitalik even talked about this where he's not bullish on bridges. Mm-hmm. He's bullish on this true native interoperability. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So you see this in the gaming world here where you have things like narrative overlap between different games, media and rich content sharing, similarities in gameplay that you're building off of. Mm. And the obvious one here, asset utility transferability. So you have these this universe and games all within it. And if they do this right, then the universe becomes more and more valuable mm-hmm. as more games get built using um, Treasure DAO. So um, I, I think the other one, one other comment or quote that they put here is... Community-driven game development is a key flywheel for growth. And this is where I think there's a Mm. huge opportunity for Web3 because, at least in my own personal experience, gaming communities are some of the most devoted communities I've come across. They Mm -hmm. are diehard. And they don't want to just sit there passively and ask for things. They want to build. They They want to influence directly. And some of the most popular... like These communities will kind of fork the game. I think WoW is a perfect example, World of Warcraft where the community had actually forked the game and said, we're going to revert WoW back to like WoW Classic, a certain patch. And it got so much traction that I believe uh, Blizzard actually released their own official Hmm. WoW Classic client because they were like, obviously it was stealing IP. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. it's like, wow, there's an actual demand here. Mm -hmm. And if you natively Mm -hmm. listen to your community like that, you can get the community instead of saying, getting feedback from the community, the community can be an active participant in the development of these games. So I am super, super bullish on that. The, I mean, the biggest question here that we keep talking about with gaming is how will the traditional gaming world accept this? Or is the traditional gaming world even a target audience? Because mm. similar with like the, the 
the average person with NFTs, the mm-hmm. gaming world is very, very disenfranchised with NFTs and crypto in general because for a few reasons with one GPU mining, at least with Bitcoin and Ethereum right now, uh, is driving up the price of GPUs and PC gamers are just pissed off because they can't play games because it t- costs $800 for a card that used to cost $200. So there's that kind of bitter resentment. The other aspect that I think is very valid is there. a lot of gamers are saying, look, I game to escape the real world. Mm-hmm. And if you introduce the real money aspect to mm-hmm. it, well, you're just bringing the real world back into games and it kind of Mm-hmm. kills the 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 fantasy kind of kills the romanticized aspect of gaming mm-hmm. when you bring the real world aspects to it both mm-hmm. very very valid so who knows maybe treasure dial plays a role here in trying to educate the traditional gaming community to come back and say here's the value prop to you and this is what's nice about it being in a kind of centralized way is they they have these economies of scale to say to have a larger audience and say this is this is our thought this is this is our opinion or they say you know what we're not even going to try and go for the traditional gaming world. We're going to go for a brand new audience that's up and coming, the future of gamers. And they don't have any of these kind of principles that have to get out of the way in order to understand this new concept. So who knows for, for uh, play to earn and in, in gaming and web three future, I'm, I could go either way. It could be a total flop because of the traditional gamers. Um, but at the same time, you have a whole new audience that doesn't have that kind of stigma attached to it. So might take a little bit longer than people might think if that's the case as as that uh, generation comes up and starts to understand natively the, the value of play to earn. Very cool. And I'm looking at the uh, I'm looking at the announcement post here. I didn't know that it began as a derivative of the loop project. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yes. So um, hmm. you had something like loot that in the example they gave specifically too is that loot was pretty decentralized and there wasn't really a, a vision there. Hmm. And what they're trying to see here is let's take the actual pros and cons to everything, right? Yep. Let's take the value of a centralized platform here, lack of a better word, uh, where we're creating the economy and game developers can build on top of that and you, t- you remove the most difficult part there. And then we can actually help funnel in the community feedback and put it back into the ecosystem and universe where if it's fully fully decentralized same problem with DAOs, right where you just have a thousand voices it's just an echo chamber Mm -hmm. or if you have this kind of medium that's collecting these things and making sense of them and pushing that out into true development you you might get a different result so again at the end here it's not to say this is the right way this is the wrong way i just love hearing about all these different projects taking different approaches And this composability aspect of open source, Web3, allows you to just test out all of these different things and learn from people's mistakes, learn from people's successes, and get better faster. All right. For the moment of truth here. <laughs> um, ETH Denver. Man, I, I, I mentioned at the beginning of this that I'm both simultaneously exhausted and <laughs> reinvigorated. And I, I think most people share yes, that sentiment after that. coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, these conferences whether you're introverted or not, it's just spending 15 hours straight a day, every day with people and consuming all of this information and trying to make sense of it, you're going to be exhausted regardless. <laughs> At the same time, you're just, you're feeling that you're not only listening to the talks and getting tons of ideas, but just the energy and the vibes there. It's just so cool that it is a bear market. Uh, <laughs> maybe people have different opinions on that mm-hmm. uh, or in a dip, but it, <laughs> Needless to say, we're we're down in a market, and you might think that something like this conference takes a huge hit, but I hmm. think numbers show that this was one of the largest conferences, uh, blockchain conferences, 
that ever happened. I think it was the highest. So 15,000 people registered and attended. And then there was an estimated another 5,000 that were going to side events that didn't get into the main event. So 20,000 people at this. And uh, I can confirm based on the wait times and the lines, <laughs> but <laughs> minus the lines, man, ugh, just such cool stuff coming up. So I, I think selfishly here, I live in Denver, um, the governor of Colorado spoke. And I think the first thing that this conference showed was that um, Colorado and maybe Denver specifically is a hub to, is a hub to web three. I mean, the, the typical ones you see are New York, Miami. Denver's getting up there. And, mm. and it's not even just Denver. That's what's kind of cool about it. There's a lot of people in Boulder. There's a lot mm. of people in Colorado Springs, all within an hour of each other. So th there's, a, there's a large footprint here of all Web3 people. And it's a force to be reckoned with. So I, I'm super, super excited. Um, the governor, Jared Polis, amazing last name, Polis, you know, the Greek city state. <laughs> just, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a fake name. But <laughs> um, he, he talked about some of the things going on that he, he's been a longtime supporter of this. He's spoken in Congress about this supporting blockchain. Um, but he, he wants to be known across the country as basically the, the Colorado be known as the, the, um, Delaware of cooperatives mm. is how he puts it. Mm. So he's trying to be very, very friendly to the Dow space. Mm -hmm. So who knows? We'll see. It's, it's, we have an ally in, in Congress here. Um, so we'll see how that goes. I wanted to highlight a few specific things that stood out to me. And these are by no means like universally the highlights of the conference. It's, it would be absolutely impossible. We could do three episodes just highlighting some of, the, some of the top things here. We do not have time for that. But these were some of the things that were um, kind of eye-opening to me. So the first one here was regenerative finance. And this is the first time I had heard about this concept. So the idea here is that similar to the concept that we we're talking about where blockchain technology web three offers a new incentive structure to do things that, uh, in the traditional world, we haven't been successful in coordinating around. Mm -hmm. So profit and loss works really well for certain things. Getting an iPhone into your hand works very, very well for certain things like, uh, planting different trees and fighting against climate change and public goods and things like that. The, the traditional structure kind of fails because you have things like negative externalities that are not priced in and that, that creates negative outcomes. And this is the problem. This is the challenge with Moloch is you can all agree that something is bad, that, that we want to change something like climate change, for example, mm -hmm. and then not have the means to actually coordinate and fight against that because the financial incentives and the social incentives are not aligned. And a lot of times the financial incentives went out. So what I love about this concept of regenerative finance is it's bringing Web3 into um, kind of the environmental space. So mm. uh, one project, Regen Network, was one of the first that got built out on this. They were, uh, they got released last year or 2020, I can't remember, built on Cosmos. Uh, other well-known ones are ClimateDAO and Toucan. So it's a very, very young space, very mm. new space. Um, but there's an opportunity for companies here uh, that are trying to have like kind of environmental goals that they need to hit to buy into something like this to use for carbon offsets and hit net zero emissions goals. This is what's awesome about this. So ClimateDAO, for example, uh, it's an ohm fork, which might scare you at first. But the idea here is <laughs> that with the treasury, they're basically buying these carbon offsets. And the concept here is they're, they're essentially sweeping the floor mm. of all of these super low impact carbon offsets so when companies come to the table and say, 
we need to hit our net new, or carbon neutral goals. Well, they either have to make meaningful changes to the, to the company and to the supply chain, for example, mm-hmm. that might meaningfully reduce uh, carbon emissions, or they're, they're forced to purchase these carbon offsets that have a higher impact to reach those net zero goals. So the idea there is that you, you take away a lot of the low-hanging fruit and you kind of force these companies to make meaningful changes in a way. So what's awesome about the regenerative finances is not just an idea right now, there are very meaningful changes being made already. Hmm. Um, with Regen Network, the guy who was speaking there, the concept there is to basically incentivize the replanting of trees across the world. And they've been incredibly successful so far. So I, I think um, it, there's, there's even another use case here for something like Regen, uh, regenerative finance is this could be an example of a DAO to DAO partnership. So just like companies, DAOs could have certain uh, environmental goals. And in order to hit those, they could partner with a regenerative finance um, DAO, like cl- a climate DAO, and say that to hit those certain goals that we are going to uh, invest this much money that's sweeping up those different carbon offsets and making a meaningful difference in the world. So perfect example of using Web3 in order to coordinate around something that was previously impossible. I loved that. Uh, so I, that's absolutely a, a group here. Again, it's um, regenerative finance, refi. Uh, I'm going to be looking at a lot more closely because there's been huge successes so far and it's very, very early. As a, cool. a kind of offshoot here of this, there was a, a, a series of talks talking about the regenerative aspect of nature and mm-hmm. looking to nature for inspiration for the way to build DAOs and the next, way, uh, the next kind of evolution of DAOs. So funny enough, uh, MetaDreamer also spoke at this event and also had a kick-ass talk talking <laughs> about um, mycelial networks as inspiration for ways to build out DAOs. And the concept that he had here is we've kind of advanced to this concept of DAO to DAO, and you create a kind of anti-fragile network or ecosystem of DAOs by making those DAOs interconnected. So instead of Mm -hmm. having all these different silo DAOs that all work on these problems independently, you combine efforts, you share treasury, you share uh, um, discord channels, you share goals, and you combine your efforts to work towards something. And that network of these different DAOs ends up creating something much stronger. And that that, what's Mm -hmm. nice about the DAO space is it's a lot easier to make those partnerships and move quickly versus traditional companies that are going to be a little bit more focused on the competitive aspects. Mm-hmm. Again, another possibility that's unlocked by Web3. Uh, the, the biggest concept here that he paralleled was in, uh, in mycelial networks, there is this pattern of life and death and recycling. And mm-hmm. when you, in mycelial networks, think of mushrooms and fungus, right? A tree dies in the forest, all these mushrooms and fungus pop up and it actually consumes that dead tree and recycles that matter and mm-hmm. and spreads it across these mycelial networks that actually benefit the rest of the forest. So when you when death is seen as a bad thing universally but in this case the death is actually mm-hmm. not only wasted but sometimes a really really good thing for the ecosystem mm-hmm. to recycle those resources and allocate them to things that might be put to better use. And when you bring that to the concept of the DAO space, what I love about this is because of the agility and fluidity of DAOs you could have these DAOs pop up for a very specific and short-term use case. Mm -hmm. Let's take COVID, for example. You have a DAO that in some ways fighting against COVID 
which is knock on wood, a temporary thing, at least the, the, the systemic problems are a very temporary thing, pop up, allocate resources to this particular problem. And then after that problem goes away, instead of like what a, a company mm-hmm. or a government agency would do, which is basically survive at all costs and mm-hmm. try and make a case for why you're still relevant, that DAO can then die or disperse and those resources can then be re, uh, like re-upped by the DAO ecosystem and allocated somewhere else. And this is what's awesome about the potentiality of DAOs is you have that fluidity, you have that capability where you can let that DAO die and it's not the end of the world because you have this network of DAOs where everyone's involved in these different DAOs, you have multiple different tokens and you can sunset that DAO and re-up those resources somewhere else. And you almost welcome this life and death cycle. And instead of creating a DAO with the sole goal of surviving forever at all costs, you say, this DAO's purpose is to solve this particular problem. And when that problem is solved, the DAO dissolves, those resources get re-upped into a bunch of different DAOs, and they're reallocated to whatever makes the most sense at that point. So I loved this concept. I love, I mean, it brings to light the concept here that we we really need to be looking outside of just the Web3 space for inspiration. Mm-hmm. Nature has done a really good job. It's had a lot of time to make things the way that they are. And that may not be the, the most optimized way every time, but it would be stupid of us not to study it and, and learn from it and apply those concepts to technology. And this is another great example of that. And it doesn't just mm-hmm. go for, for science or the envir- environmental aspects, ecology. Read about all different types of topics, physics, math. You're, you're going to find inspiration in the most unlikely places. So it's, it's another, uh, <laughs> I think, stamp in, that, in that, 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 that way of studying where you take a holistic education versus a super, super narrow approach mm-hmm. and fall into the trap that even MetaDreamer said last time, which is he feels like the longer he's in this space, the less creative he gets. And it's super, super cool to see him come back with this type of talk and take inspiration from a totally seemingly unrelated field. And it just totally blows your mind when you apply it to the DAO space. So I could definitely see that he took his own advice to heart and looked outside of the just the true Web3 space and used this other aspect for inspiration. So I think that's a great thing for people to think about. So those were two big ones that I saw. And again, that is absolutely not comprehensive. These are kind of niche ones, actually, but um, really opened my eyes. And what I recommend here, we put the links to those talks that I mentioned here in the show notes. Unfortunately, MetaDreamers isn't up there. I think ETH Denver is still working on putting all of those up. So hopefully by the time this gets released, all of the different talks will be there. But I recommend that people go to the ETH Denver YouTube page and start to look at all of these different talks. You can actually get a ton out of the conference, not even attending and just looking at the recordings here. There were such, such good topics. And it, again, it was such a good opportunity to get reinvigorated in the space, get different ideas with a lot of the best minds in not just the Ethereum ecosystem, there were in, in all of Web3. There were a lot, of really, a lot of really good people there talking about all different types of chains. So I highly recommend people look at that, take inspiration from it, think outside the box. If you need a kick in the ass or um, kind of like a, a mental coffee here, this is such a good way to do that without the Exhaustive, exhaustive aspects of going in person. But the last thing I will say here is, and if you saw the quick recap or the quick um, kind of teaser that we put out there before, um, I'll, I'll re uh, I'll re up what uh, Griff Green said at MCon, which is 
the meeting in person mm-hmm. is critical infrastructure. And it's not something you would consider to be critical infrastructure, but mm-hmm. it, it is so important. We're human beings at the end of the day in order to connect with people who you've been working with online and don't can't even put a face to, the, to a name in some cases. It's super, super important to meet with these people and connect on a human level, mm-hmm. get to know them, connect, get introduced to other people, go in person. Uh, it might not seem it, but I'm a very introverted person. Conferences are difficult. And uh, it, it's, it's unlike any other conference where you can go in there and everyone wants to talk to you. Everyone wants to talk to different people. This is not something where people are snobbish and, and don't want to talk and are high and mighty. Whether you're an absolute beginner, and there were tons of those people there, or you're a veteran, it's, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing experience. So I highly recommend it if you haven't done it yet. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex, for that amazing update. Before we say goodbye, fam, I wanted to do a quick reminder that by the time this episode is published, uh, I believe we will be right before we actually uh, open up uh, applications for season two, Contributors to Forefront. Yes. Um, so again, if you're not already a member of our Discord, uh, please join. And you can also keep up to date just by following us on Twitter. Uh, but we do plan to do uh, several more outreach uh, events from March 1st through the 14th. Uh, but that uh, March 1st is when we plan on opening that uh, contributor application. So again, really, really uh, am always stoked to get together with you, Alex, and to hear about the inspiring ideas that <laughs> are out there in the space. And super excited to have uh, season two uh, launching today. So with that, Forefront fam, we thank you and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. See you then. Hey fam, thanks for listening to the Forefront Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night or day. We'll see you next time.